We love you so much and we thank you and we praise you. And Father, we invite your Holy Spirit here this morning. And I I ask him to do two things. One, first and foremost, to speak through me. Please allow no word of my own to go out of my mouth, but only what you want. Father, and secondly, I pray that even as you have already been doing it, I pray that you prepare hearts to receive. Prepare hearts to receive that word that you have ready for us this morning. Because it's so important what you have. You desire to fill us each and every day. You desire to instruct us each and every day. And Lord, I'm excited for what you have this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I was excited this morning. It it was interesting because the Lord told me a couple days ago, we'll go back to the book of Acts. And then I was reading the next section in Acts, and I'm like, Okay, Lord, can I skip this? I, I don't know, like, how does this play into to what you have? And he just kept telling me, don't worry about it. He said, that's, that's not on you, that's on me. And so, so I didn't. And this morning, when I was having my coffee, sitting in my chair, right, worshiping, just praying, he, he just unloaded this stuff on me. That was, now I'm not sure how he's going to tie it into Acts chapter, I think chapter 6 is where we're at, but he will. But what he downloaded was just extraordinary. And so I want you to turn to Acts chapter 6. Now remember, this is the beginning of the church. We've gone through Pentecost. We've gone through just this amazing growth. I mean, by this time, they have added at least that we know of in two separate times, over 8,000 people. I don't know about you, that's a pretty big church. Especially in just a few short, what is effectively a couple of months. I mean, that's less than a couple of months. That's a lot of people to add in in just a short period of time. So, So imagine what's swirling going on. You've got... You've got the the 12 disciples, or 12 apostles at this point, and then you've got a total of 120 that the Lord started with, anointing those people, and and as we read here in a minute, you'll see why those 120 were important, okay? Um, But then from there, just, I mean, that first day at Pentecost, adding 3,000. And then, you know, some week or two weeks later, just adding 5,000 more and, and, and all of this going on. And that's what we see. I think there's so much more than what we see. But then we get to this point where the mechanism of everything becomes encumbered, right? Okay. The, the church begins to get too big for these people to handle everything. And that, that's at the point where we're at. So let, let's start in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because, and, and the Hellenists, by the way, are just a sect of, of the Hebrews there, but um, 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching or the word of God to serve tables. <laughs> Escape the fact that that sounds arrogant. But, but still, what he's saying is true. It's truthful. It didn't belittle the fact that that needed to happen. It didn't belittle the fact that, that the function of the church was less important than the reason for the church being there. It's all important. Okay, so, so kind of get past the way he says that. Where did I, where, uh, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you, okay, these are among those 127 men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves prayer into the ministry of the Word. Now with that, they chose seven men. Right? They chose seven men, went through the process of deciding who they should be and everything else. And the reason why I want to go through this is, is twofold. Understanding that in the organization of growth, in the organization of the church, there are many facets that need to be filled, none less important. Because all of them, like Jesus said, no matter what member of the body you are, you are important to the body. You're important to the function of the body, right? So that's what he's saying here. So they chose seven men, and you can read who they are, but I want to point out one because we're going to get into a situation with him, and that's Stephen. Now, Stephen was not one of the original apostles, okay? Stephen was not one of those chosen by God at the very beginning to do all of this, but yet he became chosen to lead in this organization they called the church. They called the bride. Okay? And it says here, when it talks about, Stephen was the first one, it says that they chose a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So see, in every section of this organization we call the bride, there's something that's required. Not that you're good at that job. That can't be the only prerequisite. That, well, you know, you know how to organize people, so let's, let's make you a deacon. You know, you know how to lead people, let's make you an elder. If that's how you look at this, and by the way, most churches do that. As a matter of fact, I, it, it breaks my heart to say this. Some of the churches that I, I've been involved in church leadership for over 25 years, and and. So many of the churches and how they function, it's a matter of influence. Well, that person has money, so we need to get them involved somehow. That person has money. Let's make them an elder. Oh, my goodness. That breaks my heart. Because immediately, right from the get-go, you look at the fact that you, that, that group of people are taking control from God. See, because God looks at the heart, he doesn't look at the pocketbook, he doesn't look at the resume, and I'm, I'm not saying that, that knowing how to do things is, is a bad thing, it's important. It's important to know how to lead if you're going to be put into a place of leadership, okay? But what I'm saying is, the most important thing is the heart. The most important thing is what, what, they, what the word says here, a man full of faith, 
He was complete in his faith, full of faith, and full of the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was not led by his own emotions. He was led by God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so so from this, everything went great. You know, it says, verse 6, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. By the way, disciples, there are just people that are following Jesus Christ. Okay, in other words, think of the bride. Those becoming saved, those developing relationship with him. That's what what it's talking about when it's talking about disciples. Disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, which is extraordinary. These are the people that literally hung Jesus Christ on the cross. See, they started to see the difference. They started to see the difference in these people. It wasn't just that, hey, this is the new fad, let's believe in this. No, they were trying to crush it. They were trying to crush what was called the way. Right? So so for these priests to literally go from where they were standing in their beliefs over to believing in Jesus Christ, that was a big deal. And it was because they saw the value in it. They saw the truth in relationship with him. So now we're going to get into a section about Stephen. Now remember, Stephen is not one of the twelve. Stephen was not one of the original disciples of Jesus Christ. He was a man chosen as this next layer of leadership. I want to say this because this is where we fall into is this category. And oftentimes we think that, well, you know, yeah, God might use me in some ways. But really, you know, I'm not like called to be a pastor. I'm not called to, to do this and preach the word. So, so really, I'm kind of, a, kind of a helper in a way. So, you know, God's only going to use me to a certain extent. And I know that's on many of your hearts because you've expressed it to me. But this story is going to show you how false that is, how wrong that is, how incorrect that thinking is. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, I love that, power, power what? Power of the Holy Spirit full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. What does that say again? Stephen, who was not one of the twelve, who was not one of the originators of this church, this local church, this bride, he was not one of the originators, but he was doing signs and wonders. Extraordinary. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Always a dispute, isn't there? But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It reminds me of what was promised to the disciples. Quite honestly, what was promised to me. When I took this calling... Jesus, I, I said, Lord, I, I have no idea 
how to preach, what to preach, what I'm going to do. This is so foreign to me, so outside of my comfort zone. And he promised me, he said, I will fill your mouth. Now, what was extraordinary, that was, that was, I had read in the Gospels where he promised that to the, to the disciples. But, you know, until it applies to you, oftentimes you just kind of brush over things, right? <laughs> then after he promised me that, then all of a sudden I'm seeing in the Gospels, well, that's the same thing he promised them. Do you understand that's the same thing he told Stephen? That's what he's doing with Stephen right now. And because the Holy Spirit was speaking through Stephen, they could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit that was speaking through him. You don't have to be good at speaking. You don't have to have everything figured out. You just have to step and open your mouth. And you have to walk in purity with the Lord. That's a key. That's a key right there. And we're going to see that in Stephen here. Verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now remember what they did to Jesus. This was the first step that they did to Jesus. They started to spread lies. They started to bring people into the court that would lie. About him. Why? Because they couldn't tell the truth. Because the truth is that he was following God. So they have to make up these lies so they can bring him to a place of seizing him. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this, ne- this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Now notice something here. Oftentimes, in lies, there's a portion of truth. See, that is how Satan deceives. That's how he deceives us oftentimes. Because there's a portion of truth in what he's saying, and then he encompasses it with lies. Because if you see the truth, you believe the truth part, and you open yourself up to understanding the others, it's, it's a lot easier to be deceived. Because, see, Stephen actually was speaking against the law. Not against what the law meant, but against the fact that you had to listen, or you had to obey the law in order to be saved or justified before Jesus Christ. And then even the temple. You know, Jesus himself said, if you tear down this temple, they thought he was talking about the building. He was talking about he is the temple. I'll raise it up in three days. But Jesus did not regard the temple as a place that the Holy Spirit dwelt Because he had come on earth, and the Holy Spirit was dwelling in him. And gazing at him, uh, verse 15, gazing at him, all who sat at the council saw his face. It was like the face of an angel. Now, I don't think it was because he was good looking. (laughs) I mean, maybe he was. I don't know. But I don't think that's what this is talking about. See, you can look at a good-looking person and 
not think they're an angel. When you look at somebody and you look at, you look like they have the face of an angel, what are you really saying? You see the holiness in their eyes. You see that their walk is pure before God. You see that there is no lie in them. They recognized this with Stephen. Now understand they recognized the same thing with Jesus Christ. And rest assured that as you walk with him, they'll see the same thing in you. This is what we call a testimony. This is what other people see in us. Chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Okay, now I'm not going to read the majority of this chapter, but I'm going to explain it to you. Remember what, what Stephen was accused of. Stephen was accused of speaking against Moses and speaking against his law, the law that God gave Moses, right? And so Stephen goes into this, this time of speaking and he lays out the truth of how it actually happened. Now, who he's speaking to, he's speaking to the council. These are people that are going to know that what he is saying is true because it's historic. He goes in and begins to explain how Israel even came about. He talks about Abraham and how, how Abraham was given a promise, not a, only a promise of land, but a promise that his seed would, would be greater than the stars in the heavens. Right, and he goes into that, and then he goes how how that that seed was in Egypt and and under slavery, and then were taken out by Moses. And he talks about the greatness of what was accomplished there. But then he begins to, and yet you did not believe. Now imagine. Imagine if you're standing in a courtroom and you're speaking to the judge who believes the opposite of you, and you are proving him wrong with his own words, with his own belief, with the very history that you guys share. And it's extraordinary. So I will go down to the end, because this is a long history lesson. I would, I would suggest you reading that on your own, just that the majority of that chapter up through verse 20, he gives this history of what happened. But then, or I'm sorry, up through verse 50. Then he just puts it to him. And this also you have to understand is the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit does not shy away from a fight. The Holy Spirit knows when to fight, but he does not shy away from a fight. He does not shy away from truth. Oftentimes we do that in ourselves. I do it myself. I'll be heading into what I know will become a fight. And I think, man, do I just, do I really want to invest this kind of time right now? Do I really want to do this now? I could, I could turn this way and I could go do something else and it'll be fun or I'll enjoy it. But no, when you see a fight coming, it doesn't change what you say to the Lord. My mouth is yours. 
My feet are yours. My hands are yours. And that's what Stephen does here. I love this. Verse 51. (laughs) You stiff-necked people. Now, in our vernacular today, that would be like saying, you guys are a bunch of jerks. Right? You just don't even know what you're talking about. You, you refuse of the earth. He's saying, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, which you have to understand how important that, that term is to the Jew of that day. To be circumcised was the law. To be circumcised as a male, it was to say that you follow God, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? This was incredibly important to them because it meant salvation. He's saying, you who are uncircumcised in heart and in ears. See, he's saying, you, you can have all of your life laid out to where everything looks like it's right, and yet inside you're a mess. Said you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And he had just laid out what, it, what his fathers did. I, I don't know about you, um, but I, I, I'm, I'm in the Old Testament right now. And by the way, if I have, I think I've said this before, if, if you do not have the you version, of, of the Bible where you can listen to it, I really suggest you get it. It's free, and you can listen to the Word of God. This has I rocked my world. I don't, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, this listening to it is, is like, and I, I mentioned this to somebody this past week to suggest doing it. It's like Jesus is sitting there next to you and just telling you a story. Right? And instead of pulling apart the Word of God, which is important to do, I don't mean that, but it's also important to ingest it in full. Like if you go and you listen to, um, you know, a full book, you get, you get a different picture of what that is, especially in the Old Testament. And, and, and it, it also, it's, it's allowed me, um, I can get through the entire Bible in about a month. Right around there. And, and it, it allows you to get a different perspective on what's going on. And, and what's funny is, you know, the, it, I, I'm in the Old Testament right now. And, and when Stephen says you resisted as your fathers did, man, just read the Old Testament and you're going to see resistance. It, as a matter of fact, listening to it as a story, I find myself getting frustrated I'm like, seriously, how can you guys be so stupid? And then I recognize I do the same thing. See, they didn't have the word of God like we have it. They didn't have laid out everything before them like we do. But I'm listening through there and, and, and it's like literally when I, I just finished Joshua and, and when they got in and and, and conquered the land. The Lord didn't let him drive everybody out. There, there were a few areas he didn't allow to drive out the, the nations that were there. 
And at the time, you don't know why, because he said, I will. He said, I will if, right? But then he says later, I did that to test you to see if you would stay with me. And guess what? They didn't. Literally, the next generation. The Bible says the next generation after the generation that took the promised land turned against him and worshipped idols. The next generation. I'm thinking, how hard is it to, to at least control your kids? Okay, I, I understand when it gets past grandparents and great-grandparents. You know, I'm dead, so I have no control over it anymore, right? But you have control with your children. Do you invest the time, and I know like 98% of us here this doesn't apply to, but, but it will, it will. Should I prophesy right now? No. <laughs> I won't do that. I won't do that. But we have to take the time to invest. And not just, this does apply to you, not just with your kids, but with everybody. Do you invest in your family? Do you invest in your friends? Do you show them truth? Because it says the truth will set them free. Just extraordinary. So Stephen points out the obvious. He said, always, constantly, he says, always, you resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He's basically saying, you guys are no better than your ancestors. Which of the prophets did your fathers not prosecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That was it for Stephen. That was the last thing he could get out of his mouth. <laughs> because then they seized him. Okay? It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. By the way, that's a little insight into the gnashing of teeth. I don't want to derail here but anyways it's this feeling of anger this feeling of anguish this feeling of angst when it says grinding teeth or gnashing of teeth but he Stephen full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said behold I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, something happened to Stephen here. There was a moment that follows obedience that happened. See, God knew what was about to happen to him. So he showed him the very peace that he was about to encounter, that he was headed for. But they, the, the council, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. I, I, when I picture this, it's just like little kids. La, 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 la. I'm not going to listen to you, not going to listen to you, right? They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, 
Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. What an extraordinary picture. See, the reason he saw the grace of God. Technical error. The reason he saw the grace of God was because the Lord knew what he was about to go through. So see, he was able to see that, and then as they were throwing the stones, you know, he said he dropped to his knees and died. So he was taking hits when he was standing up. And what he's saying as he is literally going to his death is, Father, I understand that reality is not what they think. I am headed for the real reality right now. Do not hold this against them because they don't even know what they're doing. Who does that remind you of? Yeah, reminds you of Jesus. Jesus said the same thing. They know not what they do. See, when you're in a relationship with him and, and, and you are close to him, there's something you know that you don't know otherwise. And it's this recognition of who he is. It's the recognition of how temporary this life is. And I don't want to say unimportant, because that's not a really good description. But in a, in a way, that's what I mean. This life is not important like the next life is. The importance of this life is that we live by faith to draw close in relationship to Jesus Christ. See, when you're with Him, you can't live by faith anymore. Once you die and you're with Him, there is no faith. It says we will see Him face to face. You don't have to believe by faith that he is God because he will be right in front of you. That's what makes this life important. Not what we do here. Not our job. Not our goals. Not what we want to do with our lives, except for how those intersect with what God wants to do. Because I'm not saying goals aren't important. They are. But they're not more important than what God has for you in your life. So we have this whole setup here of what happened. And, and we'll get into it next week because what you're going to see is this is a setup to literally begin a process of changing a man that changed history. And that's, you, you said, you, we saw Saul was at the feet. They were throwing the, the garments at the feet of Saul because Saul was, was one of the uh, people in charge there in the council, and he was approving of everything going on. Well, that Saul, we know, becomes Paul, becomes the Apostle Paul. Probably not a single greater influence in history than Paul, perhaps. And so what we see here is this, this young man, Stephen, who wasn't part of the original 12, who 
wasn't the original called. He was a part of leadership that was pulled into leadership because of a need, because of growth. But yet he had a hand in changing the world. See, you have to understand that in your life, there is nothing that God cannot do through you. If you let him, he will do exactly the puzzle piece that you are supposed to play in the bride. And it's, it's a tough understanding because it's a tough way to understand this life and why we do this here. Jesus, how come when I accept you as Savior, why don't you just bring me up right then? Because I already accepted you. And I've talked about this before. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, I think first and foremost, that's pretty selfish. Because what does he get out of that? See, you're not going to build a relationship with him outside of faith. And when you're in heaven, faith is no longer there. So the relationship that you build with him on this earth right now is critical to what happens then. And, and, and again, we've talked about it before. I, I don't want to get too distracted on this. But it doesn't just end with saying, I accept you as my Savior. In fact, this Paul that we're going to be talking about Getting into getting back into Acts, he says that this this guy who developed this relationship with Jesus Christ and was incessant on pressing in to follow him, he said, What? I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, turn to that. It's in first Corinthians three or no, Philippians three. Turn to Philippians 3, I'm not sure what verse. Uh, verse 14. You know what? Let's, let's read some more here. We, we, we got some time to do this. I want to I read what leads up to this, because verse 14 is, is the verse I just quoted. But let's read leading up to that point. Let's just start at verse 1. Of chapter 3, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Now, he's talking to Christians here, okay? Look out for the dogs. By the way, dogs are not looked upon that great in Scripture. So you dog lovers, see, I'm a dog lover. <laughs> yeah, well, I have, I have a dog that thinks he's a cat, so I, I suppose that counts for something. But look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the circumcision. He's talking about those who follow the law. And, that, and that's the extraordinary thing here. He's not saying, look out for Satan worshipers. You know, look out for those that are going to be so obvious that they don't follow God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look out for those who look like they do, but they don't. He's talking about those 
who believe in the law. Those of the circumcision is what he's talking about here. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What Paul's saying there is if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, he's talking to these who believe in the law. We're the real circumcision. We're the real saved people. Not you. Paul loved picking fights. That's why I love him. For we are the circumcision. Okay, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> Circumcised on the eighth day. And he starts to go through this, this list of things that he did according to the law that made him something special to them. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, he's laying out the fact, in the law, I was, I was good. They thought I was something. He was trained by the best. From the outside, he looked perfect. He looked like he had everything together. His life was in a good place from that perspective. Verse 7, but whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing word of knowing, worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. She said, there's nothing more important than knowing Jesus Christ. Now, you, you have to understand what he's saying here. He's not talking about knowing about Jesus. He's not a, talking about gaining in knowledge about something that you do not engage with. And that's what he was talking about before. He was full of knowledge. Full of knowledge of God, who God was, or who God is. And he said, I counted all of that as loss. Doesn't mean it was a waste of time, but it was misapplied. It meant nothing to his life when he started to develop this relationship and recognize the worth, he says, of Jesus Christ. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends upon faith. This is not a single moment in your life. It's important to understand this. Because so many Christians say, well, I've accepted Jesus Christ into my heart, so I have that faith. Right? That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking to people that are already Christians, that already have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. And one of the greatest deceptions from the enemy is that that's all you need to do. You're saved, you're saved, once saved, now you live your life how you want. 
my goodness, the loss that you will incur is extraordinary. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, Paul understood he had a responsibility in this. You have a responsibility in the acceptance of your justification. When you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, you then had a responsibility to pursue Him. You have a responsibility to pursue Him with your whole heart. Brothers, I do not consider that uh, I've made it my, my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to lies what lies ahead. See, he laid the foundation down of relationship. You ever hear the term baggage? Well, this person, they, they brought so much baggage into the relationship it had no chance. Right? We all carry this baggage. Baggage is stuff that you carry because it was never dropped off of you. And what he's saying here is you have an opportunity daily to forget what was behind. Be cleansed from what was behind and move forward from this point on developing that relationship. That's not a one-time offer, guys. That's an everyday offer. Every day Paul did this. Every day Paul would go into his day forgetting what was What was his loss behind? How he failed God behind? And saying, this is a new day. I can step forward and I can trust you. And that's what I do. I trust you today. So that way tomorrow I will have built another block on the foundation of our relationship. And we can over time build this foundation that we build together. The only way you can do that is by pressing forward. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, Paul, this is, I don't know, the Christian of Christians. (laughs) Right? You look at Paul's life as a Christian and say that from our perspective, he pursued God with everything. And yet he himself said that there was a goal he was after. See, understand the difference here. His goal wasn't heaven. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 already promised him that. See, if it was just going to heaven, he could have quit a long time ago. He could have done his own thing a long time ago. But he's trying to tell you there's so much more. There's more that you do not realize. There's more that you don't realize on this earth for many reasons. One, because you're deceived. And I'm going to tell you the same thing today. We live our lives 
like we're deceived. We live our lives like we don't recognize that there is a prize to go after. But yet, in this life, we go after the prize. We go after prizes at our job. We go after prizes of, of, a, of, of something new, of a relationship new, or, or, or you know, a, a raise in our job, or, or, you know, well, I'm in sports, so, so I go for the prize of this, go for the prize of that. None of those things are bad. God places us in those things. But that is a corruptible crown. The Bible says that's a crown that will not last if it is not used for him. It will hold no weight in his presence and his fire at the Bema Seat of Christ. He's saying you need to change how you think. And man, if I, if I could get it across anything to you, especially young people, You've heard a thousand times the world does not revolve around you, right? I mean, that is true. And, and probably overstated to where you don't listen to it anymore. right? I, I never did. Because when you're a young person, you do think the world revolves around you because it pretty much does. The world you create around yourself revolves around you because you don't let anything else in that does not revolve around you. And then you grow up and you learn different things that combat that. But see, sometimes we don't learn. I'm going to say most of the time we don't learn. We don't recognize as Christians, and that's who I'm talking about, as Christians, that the prize that we're going for is so much different than what we recognize here on earth. That's what Paul's talking about. So there's clearly a prize. It says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there was a prize to his calling. And it wasn't this specific calling of preaching. It was the fact that that's what God wanted for his life. So the prize was fulfilling God's plan for his life. He said, I press Toward that mark, I press, I push, I fight. I do not relent. Every day I go after Jesus Christ so that I might not miss that goal, that goal of that prize. You know what? Let's look. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. This is Paul again. We're going to start at verse 10, I believe. He's talking about a belief system built on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and what we call the gospel, that's the foundation. When you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart as Savior, that built a foundation in you. That was the baseline. You are now headed for heaven, no longer hell. But that was the baseline, right? That's the foundation. Verse 10 says, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. 
In other words, once the gospel is preached and received and accepted, now you build upon that that relationship with Jesus Christ. You build upon that salvation. Verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now Paul gets into what we call sanctification. What we call building a relationship with Jesus Christ in this lifetime. Verse 12, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. Now understand, Paul is not talking about building a house here. Okay? Paul is talking about building your relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said that when we build something, he used the metaphor of building with these precious stones, gold, silver, or wood, hay, stubble, or wood, hay, and straw. Because you can build with all those. Right? I, I, I'm a builder, and, and I've seen building in Mexico, and here, obviously, I built here, and I've seen it in Nigeria. And what amazes me is they build with everything. In, in Nigeria, they, they build these, these mud huts that are really quite extraordinary. Okay? They, they, they actually cut down the heat so much. It's, it's, it's crazy. They use straw and mud and, and build them up. Right? They don't do so well in a fire. Right? If, if, you, if you set straw to fire, guess what? It's going to burn. And it's going to burn down. So Paul's talking about the different ways that we build our relationship with him. Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day. Notice the day, the word day in your Bible is capitalized. It's talking about a specific day. It's talking about a judgment day. If you're saved, you will, we, we will all face judgment. Saved or not saved, we will face judgment. It's just a different kind of judgment. If you're not saved, you will face the great white throne judgment. That's the one where you don't want to be. That's the one where you are literally judged by your own words, and you will fail, you will fall, and you will be sent to the abyss. And in eternity in hell. But for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, His righteousness, His blood paid for our sin, and so we will go before a different judgment seat. It's called the Bema Seat. But we will all be there. Now this judgment seat is more about rewards. This judgment, and and don't get me wrong, I, I think there will be more crying happen at this point in history than in all history. When we stand before the Lord and we recognize, because see, now we don't see in faith anymore. We see everything in truth, everything in reality, and standing before him and recognizing what we could have done if we followed him, if we loved him, if we let him do with our lives what he wanted to. And all of the fruits of our lives, Paul uses as a metaphor here, that Jesus will test them by fire. It says, for that day we'll disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If that work, and this, this is extraordinary to understand, if that work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So if the fruit of your life stands the test of Jesus Christ's judgment, then you will receive a reward. Pay attention to me. Get this. Really, get this. you got to get this. If you pay attention in your life to relationship with Jesus Christ and the fruit that comes out of that relationship, it will be tested. And that will test and come through as pure because it was based off that relationship. You receive a reward. But there's another side to it. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now don't be confused. This is not heaven or hell. We're, everyone in this judgment seat is saved. But he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So see, this lays out the fact that there's more to come. We do not attain everything from accepting Jesus Christ into our heart. All we attain with that is an escape from hell. We don't attain the relationship without working on the relationship. There's reward to that relationship. And this is, this is just an incredible study of what this means. But recognize that we are not all the same when we go to heaven. Because some will receive... Let's go through this. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. This is important. Because I think so many Christians don't get this. So many Christians live their lives thinking that, that well, they just kind of keep within themselves. They, they don't hurt anybody. They don't affect anybody. What they really don't realize is they hurt themselves. They're the ones that they hurt. Let's let, let, the, the seven churches that Jesus writes these letters to these seven churches, and each church you know, has its own issues, good, bad, whatever. And he, he gives a charge to each church. But I want to show, I want to point a, a one thing out for each letter. In chapter 2, verse 7 is the first one. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay. Understand that wording, conquers, to him who conquers. What does it mean to conquer? If you look up the word conquer, let's look up the word conquer. This is important. If you guys have a dictionary there, app, you can look it up. Conquer. Overcome and take control of either a place or people, by use of military force. See, to conquer is proactive. To conquer 
is war. To those who conquer, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's move forward to the church of Smyrna. Verse 11, halfway through the verse, says this. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's go to the church at Pergamum. Verse 17, halfway through. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, by the way, all of these things have much heavier meaning than what we're reading, and I just don't have time to go into it. I, I, I want to really encourage you to look at what each one of these mean, because it has to do with the letter to that particular church. But these are to those who conquer these issues that life hits us with every day. To the one who conquers. Let's move to Thyatira. Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. Okay, now you're starting to get a glimpse of how those rewards begin to affect you. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give what? Authority over the nations. Wait a second. We're talking about eternity, right? Okay, there are nations in eternity? Yeah. And by the way, not just the thousand-year reign of Christ. Do you know the nation structure will continue for eternity? Read it. Look at the last couple chapters. Chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. There will be nations even after the new heavens and earth are recreated. Even after the new Jerusalem comes down, there will be nations because nations come and pay homage there every year. There will be continued nations. Let's go to the church at Sardis. Verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and will never blot his name out of the book of life. What What does white garments mean? Right, if we book, look back in the Old Testament, I want to say it was Hezekiah, I believe. He wanted to speak before the Lord, and the Lord had to give him new garments. Had to give him new garments so he would be made clean before the Lord. Was it? No, it wasn't. It might have been Joshua too. I think it was Hezekiah. Was it not? Joshua was given the clean garments. Somebody wore new clothes. <laughs> but the, the point is, it was for the purpose of a cleansing in their life, right? When you put on new garments, there was a cleansing. And what he's saying here, to the one who conquers, they will be clothed in these white garments. When you conquer in this life, what are you conquering? You're conquering sin. You're not beating up your neighbor. I'll go and beat up my neighbor. Now, I don't know, maybe that'll happen too. But No, it's, it's not about 
conquering a circumstance. See, don't be confused. Jesus Christ came and he conquered what? Death. Right? He conquered death on the cross. We immediately assume that's sin. But no. He, he cannot conquer sin for you. He conquered death for you. You still have to accept Him. And even when you accept Him as Savior, He did not conquer sin in your life without you being a part of that. See, it, it goes back to the thing that once you get saved, well, do you sin? Well, yeah. I mean, open your eyes. Uh, that, that would be awesome if we didn't sin after we got saved. But Jesus didn't conquer sin because he had no sin. Jesus conquered death because he was sinless and he was perfect. So he conquered death. So it would give us the opportunity to conquer sin. Uh, next one, Church of Philadelphia. These next two are extraordinary. Verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now we're starting to get into eternity, eternity. Because that's what he's promising here. Right? In the last one, he promised an authority that we will rule nations. And if you understand the millennium at all, you understand that, that the bride or a portion of the bride, not even the entire bride, but a portion of the bride, those who conquer, will be given authority over nations to rule with Christ. But now he takes it a step further. He says, to the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, wait, wait a second. He is God. Temple of his God. What's he talking about? Well, he clarifies. He clarifies that it's the temple of, of the Father which is the throne room of heaven, which will be the new Jerusalem that in, in chapter 21 descends after the thousand-year reign. That's what begins this, this eternity that we, we know only a few things about. But what he's saying is, is these rewards will go on past the thousand-year reign. To, he, to the person who conquers, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my Lord. What is a pillar? A pillar is a foundation that holds things up. A pillar is an integral part of the structure. To those who conquer, he will make you an integral part of his structure for eternity. And the last one, verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me upon my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Whew. You want to talk about a prize? You want to talk about a prize? What, it, 
when you understand that it makes sense why Paul pushed so hard. We push so hard in this life to get ahead. And what Paul's trying to get us to understand is get ahead for what lasts. Get ahead for what really makes a difference. See, this makes a difference for eternity. We all have an opportunity to rule with Jesus Christ for eternity. That's extraordinary. He said, even as I sat on my father's throne, which is where he is right now. He's not on his throne right now. You ever think about that? Jesus Christ is not on his throne. Why? Because his prophesied throne is the throne of David. Nobody's on that throne. Even when Jesus came to, came to earth, lived a sinless life, that's part of what the problem was then, is they thought he was going to take David's throne right then and, and pull them out of this oppression by the Romans and have this global rule. But he didn't. He died. He died like a lamb to slaughter. You know, talk about a slap in their face. You can imagine why they were upset. But it's because they were greedy for power. And But there will be a time, because when Jesus died, rose from the grave, he went and sat next to the Father on the Father's throne. And what he's saying to you, if you overcome, if you're a conqueror in this life, while you are still living and breathing, if you are a conqueror in this life, then I, just as Jesus did, I will allow you to come sit with me on my throne. That's where we get the understanding that we will rule with him in the thousand-year reign. But don't just think it's the thousand-year reign. Because, see, when that was prophesied to David, he said, your throne, right, or, or Jesus will take the throne of David, and then the Bible says, and it will never end. It will last for eternity. See, if Jesus took the throne 2,000 years ago and then died, that prophecy would have been incorrect. But when he comes after the tribulation and he takes his physical human throne, the one that has been prophesied for him, and then we have this thousand years of him being on the throne, it doesn't end then and we're just all off thrones at that point. Because it says his throne will last forever. That thousand years is part of humanity. It's it's part of the human experience. There will be humans born in that thousand year period. There will still be sin in that thousand year period. Don't confuse the millennium or this thousand year reign of Christ. Don't confuse that with eternity. Because it's, it's not the same. Eternity is what happens after the human experience is finished. I happen to believe that's at 7,000 year mark. But for the last thousand years, you have Jesus Christ reigning on earth as a man and as God. Because it's his right. It's what he purchased with his blood. And what he says is, I want to include you guys. 
I want to include you, Ignition Church. I want to include you to rule with me. But you have to be a conqueror. You have to be willing to lay down your life. We talked about it last week or the week before. You have to love not your life even unto death. In other words, nothing can be more important than your relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing. Shannon and Josh just got married. That marriage can't be more important than Jesus Christ in their lives. Otherwise, what's going to happen? Marriage will fall apart over time. But when they keep Jesus Christ center point in their hearts and center point in their marriage, what happens then? They become conquerors. We can become conquerors in our life when we fight sin. Don't be confused. This, this age of grace, this age of grace is not about our sanctification. Don't think that you can live a life that you want to live and then expect the rewards that we read about to expect to be part of what's going on. You can't be. Because there's a cost to it. There's a cost to living a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Just like any relationship you have, there's a cost to that relationship. That relationship, may, it, it, that cost may not just be time investment. It may be popularity. You're probably not going to be popular or that popular outside of church circles, by building a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? So there's a cost to it, but that is what conquers. <laughs> and and I, could, I, could, I don't have time, but I, I could go into what does it mean then to battle in this conquering? It says to take by military force. That, that hit me. It was like, that's exactly what we're doing. That's exactly what we're learning to do. That's exactly what most of the church is deceived into even recognizing exists. See, you understand, to conquer, that means you conquer something. You have a foe, you have an opposition that you are conquering. Sin is propitiated by an opposition. You're not just fighting sin. You are fighting the producer of sin. So when the church does not engage in that warfare, how can they expect to be conquerors? They can't. They can't. They can't even become ready as a bride until they engage in this warfare that can lead to conquering. See, do you think Jesus is just going to take his bride when his bride is not a conqueror? No. It has to be that we go to warfare over the things 
that Jesus wants us to conquer. That begins in our own lives. But then it it goes out beyond our own lives. We become our brother's keeper. But in our own lives, that's why purity is so important. Purity is so critical. Because purity is the evidence of conquering. Have you conquered in your own life? Do we have times in our life where we just don't understand this relationship or we don't think about it or we don't pursue it? See, Paul said, I press hard on it. I go after it with everything. To be a conqueror, that's what you have to do. To be a conquering church, that's what we have to do as a church. It's not just what I do. It's not just what a few of us do. It's what all of us do. And we do it for the sake of loving him and loving each other. Because he's important and we're important to each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you, God. You are almighty God. And Jesus, we're so thankful that you have engaged us in this fight of building relationship with you. You've given us goals. You've given us a prize that we can obtain. And that that prize is intimacy with you. That prize on this earth is knowing you by faith and seeing you work in our lives and building this relationship and hearing your voice. That's the prize here. But God, when we go through that conquering, we become qualified for that prize that you have for us in eternity. I'm just so thankful. I pray, Father, that you open our eyes especially Ignition Church, open our eyes to what you're doing and what you want to do and how important it is for each one of us, no matter what our position is is here, each one of us presses in to you with everything and unites together in this war so that we might conquer We love you so much, Jesus. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you. That was a heavy, heavy word this morning, wasn't it? A lot. Um, I kept thinking about one of the verses that the Lord laid on my heart that I both desire and it's very intimidating to me, and that's Philippians 3.10, which is when Paul is saying, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that's the good part, but then I may share in his sufferings. And Jesus came when he died, the word sacrifice, he came to sacrifice, he came to give, he came to die. And as Greg was preaching, I'm thinking, you know, how much do I sacrifice? How much of, see, because how do you know if God's first in your life? It's the way to really know and the way to really have God answer that for us is, can you walk away 
from whatever it is that you're doing? Can you stop doing whatever? Would you walk away from any, if God, if it was getting in the way of God, or, if, you know, whatever God said to do, if God told you to do it, would you do it? Now, some of us say, well, yeah, if God walked in the room and actually spoke out loud, you know, if we put all these parameters on it. But oftentimes we, we don't look at it as, okay, can I walk away from it? Because we really do want our cake and want to eat it too, you know. And that's hard. That's, that's a really hard thing. And um, sharing in the sufferings is sacrifice. And we get bent out of shape if we, you know, have to, you know, if service goes an extra 25 minutes or whatever. It's like it's a sacrifice of our day. It's a sacrifice of our lunch. It's a sacrifice of my stomach growling. And we think those are sacrifices. And, and... I've been overcome lately with um, looking at different ministries, and this week I was watching a documentary on um, Heidi Baker's ministry in Mozambique, Africa, and just the stories of the people and their hunger for God and what they were willing to do. And even with us in Kaduku, the people that walked hours and then slept outside to hear the message of Jesus. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, we... We should be thankful for what we have, but we're just, we're spoiled breath. You know, it's like, Lord, thank you for all that you've given, and yet we have to give up one thing. Um, we do have our, a fit. And so, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. But we just have to ask God, you know, can, you know, Lord, help me. Help me to, help me to take the, loosen my grasp on things in life so that you don't have to pry it out of my hands, because that's the hard part. But, um, but again, this is another one that's so heavy, you just need to hear it again. So listen to it again and, and just soak it in. There's a lot of scripture that's really good there. And um, I know I, I definitely need to. And, you know, share the messages. Share these words with people. Um, share the podcasts and get people engaged. Because this is really, it's everything. It's, um, you know, it, it's something that I, I always find that we don't know how important things are until our eyes are open. And that just that was the other thing, too, that hit me when he kept saying, this is important, and pay attention. I thought of Ephesians 1, you know, that our eyes of understanding might be opened. You know, we think right now, according to whatever is in our life, that there's certain things are so important. And I'm just like, God, I don't know what's important unless you tell me. Because yeah. I'm going to get off every time. Every time I'll get, I'll, I'll get off, even if it's Christian stuff, I'll get off into good works and I'll think that's important. And that's not what it's about. He's got to show me what's important. And, um, and that, that, that lens, I just don't even trust my own mind. I want God's mind. I want Christ's thoughts. I want him transforming my thoughts because that's the only way I know I'm on track. And, uh, and be careful, church, because blessings and, uh, and the fulfillment of promises, and, and I would say the abundance of the fulfillment of promises is around the corner. And it is in times like that, in the times of rest, refreshment, that we that God gives, and it's wonderful, but that will trip us up. That's why those verses in Deuteronomy, when he's warning the Israelites, be careful. Be careful that you don't turn from me when you're not in that desperate place. You know, when we're, when we're that's why people always have these, these near-death powerful experiences. When everything's stripped away and their very life is at stake, all of a sudden they recognize things that are important. That ought to not be the only times that we see that. That's the thing I've been asking God. God, keep keep it somehow in the forefront. I don't always want to be in a desperate place grasping for my, you know, my life. I want to enjoy refreshment, but not at the expense of putting an idol in the front of my life. And so pre, continue to pray for that because there's great things around the corner. There's great blessings. God wants to bless. He wants to bless, but he does not want 
idols in our life. And if you don't think that people, anything can be an idol. Anything can be an idol. And uh, there shall, thou shalt have no other gods before me, he said. But boy, when he is first, he will add everything else that you need. Yeah. So it's really cool. So um, so thank you again for that great word. And uh, we actually are, are uh, leaving immediately.